All right, so uh, not having done this before, we'll try this format and see how it works, but I'm hoping to get some interaction from everyone. And what my plan is that we can read each of these phrases from the first section of the Statement of Faith, and then my goal would be that we would try to answer these four questions and have some uh, interaction and discussion about that. So we'll start with just the first phrase, we believe that the Holy Bible, the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, was written by men divinely inspired and that it is a treasure of heavenly instruction. And so why is this phrase important related to the Bible and, and why we believe these things about the Bible? Okay, which says? Okay. Okay, good. And so then that gets, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 gets into the question of, does the included verse support the phrase well? So if you flip over the back side of the page, you'll see that that's one of the verses that's included at the bottom of that section in the Statement of Faith, is 2 Timothy 3.15-17. So I think we probably agree that that's a good verse to have in this section, right? Okay. And uh, so we will definitely... Uh, I think we should definitely plan to include that there. Uh, what, what other reasons are important with related to uh, inspiration? Why else is that important? What might be something connected with it? Yes? Okay. Okay. Good. All right. The question of the source. Is it God or someone else? Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. So we have a, st a standard to measure everything by, which gets in the question of authority, and related to that is also the question of, um, and I guess we'll get we'll get down to that a little bit later. The question of is it accurate or not? Because that's another question. If it's not from God, if people made it up, there's going to be error mixed in with it. We'll get that to, uh, in just a moment. Um, what about 66 books? What if they found a Gospel of 4th John or a 4th John? Would we should we add it to the Bible? Should we not? Why not? Or why should we? Okay. So maybe if we could prove that it was actually genuine, uh even if we could prove that it was actually genuine, let me just throw this out here. We know that Paul wrote at least four letters to Corinth. We only have two in the Bible. So would we include 4th John in what we understand to be the Bible even if they discovered it? Well, wouldn't we say that the canon is still uh, based on man's determination? That's a good question and something that I think is, uh, so the canon, the 66 books, why 66 books, why not 67 or 40 or some other number? The Hebrew scriptures, I think there's much less dispute about this because it's something that the Israelites accepted as these are the books for centuries. Um, and when I say they accepted, there's a whole bunch of things we may not have time to go into everything, but the, the basic overview would be this. For the, for the Old Testament, was it the, the word of the prophets or those connected with the prophets? Was it accurate because one of the tests of the word of the prophets was, did what they say come to pass? Was it true? Um, 
there were also specific purposes for which various books were written to instruct in various aspects of what God had called them to do. Um, not everything was included, nor did it have to be. I mean, you think about the Psalms and Proverbs. Not everything that they sang was included in Psalms. Not everything that Solomon wrote was included in Proverbs. There were Proverbs other than what Solomon wrote that were included. Uh, so the question is, when it comes to what's in the canon, do we look at it as, this is just what people said, these are the ones we think should be in there? Or do we look at it as God directing the process in such a way that people recognized the truth of what was there, that it was genuine, that it was real, not that it was just like, I like this, I don't like this, or this is true, this is not true, because there's many things that are true that are not in the Bible. There are many things that we don't like that are in the Bible. So it's more than just those things. Um, the process of preservation, how do we have the Bible today? How did the Bible get from, say, Abraham in the form that it was then to uh, David to the prophets like Isaiah to Jesus' day? How did it get through all those things? The process of preservation is not miraculous, but it is providential, I guess I would say. So it's not as though when, when God spoke the truth through the men that wrote the, the Bible, that we could say in some extent was a, a, a more direct working of God. The preservation of Scripture to get it from then to now is something in which God certainly was sovereign and supervising all those sorts of things, but not to the same degree as, as, as the uh, assurance that the, what was originally written is exactly what God wanted it to be. And when it comes to the New Testament, what were the criteria that the early church used? Were they just random things? They had to be written by an apostle or someone who had spoken with Jesus face to face. They had to be uh, recognized and, and communicated to various churches, uh, not just like in one place. And, and, and they couldn't contradict the rest of what was recognized as Scripture. So there's been disputes about whether certain books are part of the New Testament or not. Um, what's that? Thomas. Right, Thomas. Or well, even the book of James. Martin Luther didn't think that James should be in the New Testament. Why? Because he thought it contradicted Paul. Uh, or some of the early church looked at Second Peter, for example, and there were questions about that initially. There's, there's questions about some of these books, at least at the outset, were they, recognized, were they from an apostle, were they genuine, those sorts of things. Many of those questions over time came to be laid to rest. And so it's definitely something that I think that we should think about more and study more, but uh, I think it's important to recognize that we have 66 books, not randomly, not just because somebody went and Here's a list of 150. I like these 66, that there's more going into that process than that. So, um, so moving on to the next one for sake of time, and we could always come back to that down the road. love to have further discussions on that. Uh, that it has God for its author and is the Word of God and does not contain the Word of God. Why is this one important? Okay, question of authority. What else? Okay, takes, takes us out of the picture. I will say this, though. When you look at the Bible, why doesn't every book sound the same? Different people wrote it. So the process of, of God authoring Scripture, and if you look at, I believe it's uh, 
verse uh, the, on the back of the page there, Second Peter one twenty one. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The imagery or the picture there, if I recall correctly, is that of like a, the wind filling the sails of a ship. The wind is directing where the ship is going. There's a lot of things going on on the ship to keep the ship going in that direction. You know, the, the captain is telling the crew, do this with this sail, do that with that sail, that sort of thing. We don't want to push the imagery too far, but I think it, I, we could say this. The Bible flowed through the personalities and the experiences and all of those sorts of things of the men who wrote the Bible. In this sense, uh, you see differences in grammatical style. You see get differences in background. Paul was a really well-educated guy. Peter was also, Peter was not dumb, but he was also a fisherman. He wasn't trained in the same way that Paul was. And so his writing has a different feel to it than Paul's writing does. He tends to use, to some extent, shorter sentences and, and less polished Greek and that sort of thing, at least in certain parts of his epistles. That doesn't mean that it's inferior in any way. It just means God worked through these different people in different ways. What's the significance of is the word of the God and does not contain the word of God? Okay, good. And furthermore, there's been uh, different trends in theology in the last, let's say, 100 years where people have said, well, it becomes the word of God to you as you hear it. And the difference in those two things is this. Is it the Word of God as written, or does it become the Word of God through some kind of mystical experience that, that happens after the fact that could be completely different from the words on the page? And I think that that's dangerous and something that we should be careful of because there is a, a growing tendency in our day to see at least an openness to additional revelation, and often it starts off as, Here's additional revelation that doesn't contradict the Bible. I had a dream, I had a vision, I had a word from the Lord. And there are very conservative and good Christian people who are saying these things. It's not the ones that are running around in the aisles and throwing themselves on the ground and barking like dogs and doing crazy things. These are people that, that, that write commentaries and speak at conferences and are well-respected in Christian circles, but they have an openness to a additional revelation that as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible, it's okay. The problem is, inevitably, there's going to be a competition of authority. Is it what this person is saying, or is it what's already written? And that's, to a certain extent, what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. Is it what the Pope says, or is it what the Bible says? Is it what these traditions are recorded, or what the Bible says itself? And so I think that we have to be careful that we make sure that, that to stress that it has God for its author, and it is the Word of God as written without some sort of external experience that sort of activates it and makes it real for you. Which is not to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't bring Scripture to mind, doesn't grab our attention sometimes as we're reading the Scripture, and we're like, this makes sense. This connects with this passage elsewhere. And those sort of, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it doesn't mean what it means until something else happens. Uh, and connected with that, I think the Second Peter passage is connected with that. Um, uh, Acts 116, uh, Acts 321, and uh, uh, those all, um, uh, 
those all have to do with that, that particular section, I believe, per, probably John 10.35 as well. I'm a little bit hesitant on this because the passages are not listed with each particular phrase. They're listed all at the end. So it's, sometimes it's a little bit hard to establish which one flowed into which phrase, but I think we can see the connections fairly clearly. Uh, the one with salvation for its aim. The passage, I believe, would be uh, Luke 16. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And then uh, the First Peter 1 passage the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, is one of the primary aims of Scripture that we would be saved, that we would turn to God, follow Him as we ought? Yes, I think we could certainly say that. Any further questions, thoughts, discussions on that phrase, salvation as for its aim? Uh, the next phrase, it says that it has truth without any, any mixture of error for its matter. Why is this one significant? Is it a problem if the Bible's wrong about math and science? Let's put it that way. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is significant because there's been a trend in our day to say, well, science has discovered this, and the Bible says this, so let's correct what the Bible says by what science has supposedly discovered. There's several problems with that approach, but one of the primary problems is that question of authority. Where do you start with? Do you start with what the Bible says and try to understand science in term of, terms of that, or do you start with what science supposedly says and correct the Bible as far as that goes? Related to that is the question of, when science speaks to the origins of the universe, is it behaving scientifically? No, because the scientific method involves experimentation, testing hypotheses, all these sorts of things. You can't go back and recreate the beginning of the world. And so, to a certain extent, the person who says the world started with the Big Bang or various other theories is coming at it with the same degree of faith that the Christian is coming at from the Bible. And so this is very important in our day because there's a lot of people, uh, and you know, I think that there are organizations that prom pro promote young earth creationism, and I'm glad for them. I think sometimes whatever your thing is that you say, this is my thing and I want everybody to know about it, can sort of tend to shape everything that you do. So I think we have to be careful of that tendency. That being said, it is important to stress that if there is no world created as God said in the beginning, there is no Savior. Paul makes that connection very clear in Romans 5. No real Adam, no second Adam. I think that that's important for us to remember. 
So it's truth without any mixture of error. The Bible does not speak exhaustively to every subject, but on those subjects in which it speaks, it does speak accurately. Sometimes that means that it speaks according to the conventions of how we would describe things. Is the Bible wrong when it said the sun rises and the sun sets? No. Scientifically speaking, do we realize that the, the world spins and orbits around the sun? Yes. But according to normal language and usage and those sorts of things, you and I talk about sunrise and sunset, and we don't say, oh, they have no idea what's going on in the world. So I think it's important to recognize that that doesn't mean error when the Bible speaks according to the way that we normally speak. Um, and so, let's see here. Uh, I think John 17, 17 would be one of the passages that would go along with this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's on the fourth page there. And it uh, also Revelation 22. God will add... If you add to these words, God will add the plagues. If you take away from the words, God will take away his part from the book of life and the holy city written in the book. And so that's, that's significant, right? Don't add to the Bible or you'll receive the plagues in it. Don't take away from the Bible or you will... The person who's willing to take away from what God has said and set up their own authority is someone who really doesn't belong to God, which means you're going to be outside heaven's gates. You'll be away from God's presence. So that's important for us to remember as well. Obviously, I think it was specifically applied to what John was saying in Revelation, but by extension to the whole of Scripture. That it reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Why is this one significant? Why do we need to know the criteria by which God will evaluate us? Sure. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah, good. Good, good. God's uh God's perfection that we can't reach but the sets a standard for us. Yes. Okay. Sure. So God, God is right in, in condemning those who don't obey. Good. Uh, I'm not repeating because I think you all can't hear him repeating for the sake of if someone in, who's teaching at Sunday school listens to it, they can hear what's being said as well. I think that this has connections back to what we looked at last week in this respect. Whatever your perspective on those specific passages, and I will grant that there are godly people who have disagreements about the meanings of those texts that we looked at, the question is, are we upholding the Scripture as Scripture, trying to understand how God wants us to live it out in the world then, how God wanted them to live it out then and us to live it out today? Or are we saying, I can do whatever I want? Because I think that there is, there is a, a difference between saying, let's figure out how this passage, uh, take an Old Testament passage, something like uh, one of the examples that's been given was the Israelites were supposed to make a little, uh, I think the King James says a parapet, like a little fence around their rooftop. Why? So you wouldn't fall off. That's the immediate meaning, but why? Why would God say make a fence around your rooftop? 
I think if you ponder it long and hard enough, you'll come back to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I want to make sure that I'm not setting this person up in a situation where they're liable to injure themselves in the same way that I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't want to fall and be injured myself and, and not to reverse it and make it selfish, but simply saying, God told the Israelites, love me, love one another. And to a certain extent, I think, uh, I think at the end of the day we can say that what is in the Old Testament law flows out of those two things. Because Jesus basically said the law is summed up in these things. The difficulty for us is the distance of, of culture and time and experience obscures some of those connections. You know, why weren't you supposed to, um, why weren't you supposed to eat a baby goat that was boiled in the milk of the mother goat? What's the connection between that and love God, love your neighbor as yourself? I think we just have to tie that one back to love God. And God said, in some way, which we may or may not understand at this point, that distinguished you from the peoples around you. And to a certain extent, in, in the same way that we have things that God has called us to do as Christians that may seem strange to the world around us, God called them to do that. And if they were genuinely following him, they were willing to do that. And so, revealing the principles by which God will judge us is a, a very important function of, of the Bible. I was trying to look and see. Uh, Philippians 3.16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Not every church will agree on the specifics of applying every aspect of the Bible, but I think that it is important that in a local body, there's not this person has this idea about what the Bible says, this person has this idea about what the Bible says, and it becomes such a significant division that there's a rift in the body. This is a challenge when it comes to something like a statement of faith, because the more specific you are, in the statement of faith, the more opportunity it creates for a separation between people. Uh, there's a joke told about, about two guys that are arguing. I'm not going to tell the joke because it, it might. It, <laughs> the end of the day is basically they, they're agreeing all to the same point and, uh, and they get to the end and they're, they're one deviation off on, on which particular split of that denomination that they were a part of. And the one guy says, die heretic. And he's like, get rid of that guy, you know. So they have all this agreement. And then they come to the end and they're like, we're not on the same page. I think that it's important that we uh, consider what's in the statement of faith. We allow room for people who are not mature in the faith, someone who's been saved recently, maybe someone who's been in a church where they haven't been taught the Bible extensively, to come to an agreement of an understanding of what the Bible says. But here's the other challenge. If we go to over here, which is where a lot of the denominations went in the early 1900s, and we say, well, we just follow the New Testament. It's dangerous for, dangerous for us to ignore all of the discussions since the New Testament and all of the particular twists and turns of error since that time. 
So, so what's the balance between those things? And that's something that I'm still wrestling with. If I put something about, or since we have something, I should say, about end times events in our statement of faith, what do we do about the person who says, oh, I think the rapture happened after the tribulation instead of before the tribulation? Technically speaking, they probably shouldn't join the church if there's a disagreement on that point. And yet those are important doctrines, important truths to consider. So I raise that issue not to answer it at this point, but just because I think there are important things for us to have in our statement of faith, and I think that there are things that we must hold, particularly for those who are in leadership in the church, but there's also that tension of, does someone just say, I'm going to sign off on this because I want to be a part of it, even if I don't understand it? I'm going to agree to it, but hold reservations in my mind and not really believe it wholeheartedly? That's one of the challenges with looking through some of these things. All right, any further thoughts on principles by which God will judge us, since I got on a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail there? Jonathan. Yes. Yes. So, I'm sorry, if you have something further to say, go ahead. Okay. Um, so the question of what is the major theme of the Bible, there's been at least as many explanations of that advanced as there are people in this room and probably more, at least different nuances of it. Um, one of the more compelling ones that I've seen is that uh, I'm trying to think how the how the particular guy worded it. Uh, God glorifies Himself through salvation and judgment according to works, something along those lines. And I'd have to look up the specific the specific phrase. The challenge is this: not everyone is going to be saved. So if we say that salvation is the aim, are we adequately covering the entire purpose of Scripture? I think that's your question, right, Jonathan? Is that part of it? Clarify for me. God's glory and salvation through judgment. I think that's the way that it, that phrase was put. Yes. Well, we're not saying it is the only aim. True. In this statement, either. True. We're saying that as a whole, that is the that is the purpose, and I don't think we can argue against that. We might be able to throw some caveats in. Yeah. I wonder, too, if it would be helpful to uh, clarify that phrase or add to it something along the lines of... Yes, go ahead, Paul. Right.
Right. Sure. And I would agree with you that the, the primary, well, at least one of the primary purposes of Scripture is, uh, here's the tension for me. If we say salvation as its aim, and we say salvation means be saved yourself, respond properly to people who aren't saved, and people who aren't saved hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond, those things are true, but I think that's a broader definition of salvation than it is sometimes meant. And here's why I mean that. If, um, if I say God wants so-and-so to be saved, what are we generally thinking of? That that person would be converted and actually follow God. So that's the tension, depending on how you understand salvation. Is it a, is it a broad understanding of salvation? Salvation, everything connected with it? It kind of is connected with, and we'll probably talk about this more in a few weeks, when you say the word gospel, uh, there was a joke with some of the seminary guys that this was the gospel-centered coffee cup just because there were the, all, of the, um, all of these different books written, gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered this and the other thing, and it's easy for that phrase to become a marketing term and become really broad and lose its significance. So what is the gospel? Is it Romans 15, 3-4, I delivered to you what I received, that Christ uh, lived, died, was buried and raised according to the scriptures? Is it just that? Is it more than that? Does it include everything that follows after believing that message? That's the tension, I think, when we look at a phrase like salvation here. And so if we understand salvation for its aim is one of the primary purposes of scripture is for people to follow God, yes. If it said salvation for its only aim or, or that sort of thing, then I think we would have to change it because in reality, Scripture reveals God, and revelation of God, I think we can say in the Bible, always demands a response. But that response is not always positive. And then God acts according to the word that He has revealed. I mean, take Jonah and Nineveh. What, did, what happened there? Forty days in Nineveh will be destroyed. That's God's revelation. Whether God intended Jonah to or not, Jonah didn't say anything about, and if you repent, God will spare you. But that's what God did, right? But if they had not repented, what was going to happen? Forty days the city was going to get wiped out. And so I think that as long as we understand this phrase in that context, that God reveals himself, that God's revelation demands a response, that that response is not always positive, and that God will fulfill his word regardless, I think that I, th I don't think that that's a bad phrase to have. Yes. So does it make sense then to expand it? Expand it a little bit to mention, and again, just off the top of my head, you know, it has salvation for its aim in that uh, His will will be done and He'll receive glory, something to that effect. Yeah. I'm making notes because uh, as we discuss some of these things, I think down the road it would be, be helpful for us to consider that. Uh, even if we clarified it in terms of um, it has salvation for its aim uh, to bring men to salvation or have a basis to judge them, something along those lines too. I mean, something like that would help clarify it too. But 
and, and the idea of God's glory. That God's glory is the thing that over that is kind of like the umbrella under which all of these things fall. The problem is if we just say everything is for God's glory, sometimes that can become so vague that that and and I completely agree with it. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with the idea that everything is for God's glory. I think sometimes we need more definition under that heading, that umbrella, to make it clear in our minds. So Yeah, I'll uh I'll definitely think about that some more and and I think I think of all the phrases, that's probably the one of this one that would probably need clarification the most. Any further discussion on that one? Or that's just the way I phrase that makes it sound like a business meeting. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I do think it's helpful going through it this way because you know at first glance you say, okay, we don't disagree with that, but then as you take the whole thing and chew on it, it does help to say, hey, you know what? Maybe it needs a little bit more of this right. to uh, clarify. Let me, give you a, let me give you an example here. All right. So here's, here's the things that we're trying to go between. That's the statement on the Bible that I gave you all before I came. It's about four sentences. This is the one I had to write for seminary. It's two pages. And then this is the one that I taught through in a Bible study at an assisted living home uh, earlier this year in connection with anticipating looking at some of these things. It's about eight pages. Why do I show you that? My point is, it can be a short phrase or a really long phrase. We just have to find what's reasonable between those two extremes. So I just... uh, I just, I just wanted to illustrate that that way. But I do think it's helpful for us to think through it and ask ourselves. And I would encourage you to go back during the week and do this as well. Are there, do I feel like there's gaps in the statement of faith of things that are essential to what the Bible is that should be in there that aren't? Are there things that are unclear that need to be clarified? And I would love and welcome your suggestions and input along those lines because that's our goal. Our goal is that this document would be something that we say, I believe this, I affirm this, I follow this, that someone coming into the church says, I can agree to this as well. When I say I can agree, because I understand it, not because, you know, uh, and that we would be able to explain it to them. So that's my goal, that we know it, that we understand it, that we agree to it, that we can explain it to someone new, and that we live by it. All right, um, for sake of time, moving on to the second to last phrase. That it shall remain, therefore, to the end, the true center of all Christian union. Any questions or comments on whether that's clear? Paul? Okay. Why union? Why, why not union, I guess I should say. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
This, I'm sorry, say that one more time. It has connection with the word Catholic. We don't like the word Catholic because it has different connotations, but Catholic would basically be like all of, all of Christendom together. In that sense, it's not a bad word. I think as far as why certain things are capitalized in here, why is truth capitalized, I, I think uh, standards of capitalization have ebbed and flowed during the years. I think probably is what it boils down to, or perhaps for emphasis. Um, uh, what does it mean it will remain therefore to the end the true center of all Christian union? Does everyone know what that means? Okay. Okay. So if we said something like I'm just writing this out to see if it makes sense to me before I say it out loud. If, I said, if we said something like that, we are united by the truth of Scripture, would that communicate the same thing? I think there is an emphasis, though, that it will, shall remain. Okay. I mean, I, again, the first verse that pops in my head is, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand forever. So, you know, I, I, I think that's the, <clears throat> and I know it's not a verse that's on here, if I didn't see it. But that seems to be the part of the emphasis. Mm hmm Okay. Right. Yeah. So if I had to say simply what what is what is union in, in the Christian faith, it would be Christians are connected to one another because they are connected to Christ and the basis of it is scripture, something along those lines. So in that respect, I think it does try to capture that idea. Okay. To a certain extent, that's up to you guys. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm not saying that uh, facetiously or whatever. Right. And and here's the other challenge. So this one is on the scriptures. So how much of the one of the scriptures do you pull in the one on salvation? Are they all these separate compartments, or do they all weave in and out with each other? That's another question as well. So, Eric. So would the question be, though, is it 
I mean, as we're thinking about this, is it the Word of God or is it that relationship with Christ? Because, like you said, in, in another country, they're going to have, based on their language, even though it's still the Word of God, some variances. So do we, do we tie it to the Word or is it the relationship with Christ? I think the first part, that it shall remain therefore to the end, makes complete sense in dealing with the point that we're trying to make about Scripture. But saying that it's the true center of all Christian union, I think, might be, um, I don't want to say a stretch, but misleading. Yeah. And, and I think that's an excellent point, that it's not just, sometimes we think of unity and it's like we're not fighting about whatever in the local church. And you're saying, which I think is an excellent point, it connects us in the church across the world. And I think it, it yeah, go ahead, John. I think that's something that we should probably all reflect on that phrase and, and think more about if it's clear or how can we make it more clear. And again, you know, I'd love to have further discussions on some of these things. So uh, if you have further thoughts, feel free to call me, email me, and take in notes. And, and I think we should factor all of these things in. Um, all right, last phrase, that it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Any clarification needed for that? Any agreement, disagreement? Any passages of Scripture that come to mind connected with that? I like the boldness of it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it, I think it strikes us as particularly bold today in a culture that's one where people are like, you have your truth, I have my truth, um, that it all comes down to a subjective personal opinion about how the world works. I feel things should be this way, you feel things should be that way, you can't tell me to do that because I'm convinced it's this. And uh, to say that there is an external standard by which all of us will be evaluated ties back to that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us. But the judge us, I think, has more to do with behavior in some extent, and this has more to do with belief, although it does say conduct. At the end of the day, how do we know what we're supposed to do? Do we do it or not? It comes back to what the Bible says. And I think, um, I think that's where they bring in Jude 1.3. I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. I felt the necessary necessity to write to you, appealing you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's, that might be tied with the previous one as well. 
And then Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So I think the question for this particular phrase is, is there a verse that clearly supports it from the verses that are listed? Not, not is that a biblical statement, because I think we can argue that it is, but what specific verses support it? Because if Jude 1.3 goes with the previous one, and if the only statement is, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I'm not sure if that adequately supports that phrase. No, I'm right. Right. So I think with that one, I think it would be something where we would, if, if that is in fact the way that we would want it to be phrased, and I think it's a true statement. Okay. Yeah, and that's true. And I guess I always look at it more as like these are all in order, but it may be, and maybe that's why they didn't put the verses with the specific phrases because it's the compilation of these verses that leads to the statements. Any further thoughts on any of these things? Is this format helpful, unhelpful? Anything you think we should do differently next week? Okay. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer, and then we'll prepare for the morning service. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to look at these truths of your word. We thank you for your... Uh, just the scope of your word that even in trying to clearly phrase what it's about and and what it is it is a significant challenge for us to do so accurately and adequately and just to communicate in a few words uh, truths about uh, uh, you that spans 66 books in which um, in other places it says if all of the words and works of Christ were to be recorded they would fill the earth that there is far more about who you are that we will yet have eternity to discover and yet the things that you've revealed to us are sufficient for us to live and to please you we pray that you'd help us to do that well even today and we pray this in Christ's name amen